0: The practice of reproductive endocrinology is very quick. The patients are very savvy. They're very well-read. You really need to be on your game. You need to be able to do a couple things at once. You need to be incredibly organized. And those are not things that can be taught. So really, these this culture of these practices starts with who you hire.
1: Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones.
2: Today on the show with me is Monica Moore. Monica attended the University of Pennsylvania where she became a nurse practitioner. She also was a clinical instructor at Penn and then was a clinical instructor at Yale for a number of years. She worked at RMA of Connecticut and now consults fertility practices around the world from her offices in Florida. Monica, you are the person that so many people think of when they think of nursing in our field. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health.
0: Thank you for having me, Griffin. I'm excited.
2: So how did you get to be that person? There's a lot of nurses and nurse practitioners, but how did you get to be the person that consults practices about their nursing team and find yourself in this role where you're dealing with so many clinics and why is this important?
0: Well, I guess I wanted to have that person. I wanted a person to do that for me when I was orienting and then later when I was a nurse manager who was so busy that I don't feel like I really gave the new nurses everything they needed in terms of succeeding and the information that they needed just to be confident at their jobs. So I sort of created that position for myself at the places where I worked and then I moved around a little bit. And then once I moved to Florida, I figured this is my opportunity really to try to make this consulting aspect of the business work instead of just sort of doing it on the fly. And so a lot of my previous clinics where I worked in-house became my clients and still are. And so I'm able to train their nurses remotely from a quiet place without patient phone calls and all the other distractions and being pulled into meetings. And I find that you know, having that time to be able to do that really gives them what they need in terms of succeeding. And I feel that it takes a lot of pressure off the nurses who are well-meaning, but either don't have the good materials or the time to really properly educate somebody, which to me is the first step in many steps of really improving nurse engagement, which is my passion.
2: So let's talk a little bit about the importance of nurse engagement, because maybe it's just me and the tracks that I attend when I'm at a conference, I'm going to patient relations programming or practice management programming. It seems to me from afar that nursing just seems so siloed, even though, even when we overlap a little bit. And I think that nursing is the central point of patient relations. If we're looking at, at it like in access, it's the bullseye. Uh, would you agree with that or disagree with that? And for sure, a little bit about what that's like.
0: For sure. So you know how you, you have that, that expression, you only have one chance to sort of make a first impression. And a lot of offices might feel like it's their website. They might feel like it's the front desk, but truly the person that you're going to be in constant contact with, who's your liaison between you and other parts of your care team, who is your person, so to speak, is the nurse in most practices, as it should be. So they are your organizer. They are the director. They are the liaison. They are your educator. And so in keeping with that, for for sure, to me, They are the person that is very important in every reproductive endocrinology, which is what I do office in every office, so to speak. But absolutely, they're very autonomous in this field, which is great and not so great when you don't really know what you're doing, which is where I come in or people like me come in. But the patients, when they go to reach out to talk to somebody, usually often reach out and talk to their nurse. And then the nurse will have to delegate and sometimes doesn't delegate, um, which you know, we can talk about later in terms of kind of overdoing it. The the non nursing essentials, but the person, the patient's person, is the nurse, in my opinion.
2: So if we get people to appreciate that, and I think it, I think most practice managers and physicians can appreciate that at an intellectual level, and that's our audience: practice managers and practice owners. One of the things that they often mention that they face challenges with is really high burnout rate with IVF nurses and feeling like they just can't retain them. So before we go into all of the reasons why that might be happening, can you set the stage of us of what burnout is for an IVF nurse and what's happening?
0: Yes. So I feel like we should talk about a couple of terms. So one term that we talk about a lot is retention, and that's somebody staying at their job. That's like the bare bones. If you want somebody to stay at their job, what I like to talk about and I'm interested in is engagement. So that's somebody having an emotional connection to that job, to their manager. They're the person that, you know, on a snow day, it stays late at the office because they need to make the calls and other people live two hours away. And they do it because they are emotionally connected. They have an attachment to this office. They want to see it do well. So when we talk about burnout, to me, that's the opposite of engagement. So nurse burnout is when basically somebody is taking care of somebody and we can talk about this in terms of a compassion fatigue, which is another term of it, but they become cynical. They become, they start to complain. They feel like there's a ceiling to where they're working. They feel like they're underappreciated and it starts to affect their role, which obviously would start to affect patient care. Absolutely. Because it also affects the other nurses and other, every, every discipline in the office, when you have a complaining, cynical crabby pants nurse because they're unhappy or feel underappreciated there is a i would say the triple down effect becomes a waterfall in terms of the lunchroom and in terms of then how the patients are treated they'll just do the bare bone stuff as opposed to being engaged an engaged nurse is a completely different person when they're talking to patients and that's what you want to have in your practice
2: that's interesting because on a spreadsheet burnout might be the opposite of retention, but you're saying it's the opposite of engagement. So that is to say that someone might be burnt out, totally not engaged, but they'll still stay on your staff and take a paycheck for, what, six months, a year, two years, forever?
0: As a nurse manager, those are the people that we struggle with, that particular subset of nurses. So those that are staying but are unhappy because we really, we can't write them up in ter- you know, and say, you haven't done this, or you haven't done that, but you really need to go and they're not going because whatever they get benefits through their particular practice or it's just an easy job in terms of hours for them or childcare but those are not that is not ideal so just having nurses stay which is already a, a feat in and of itself just having nurses stay is is not good enough as far as what you're going to get distilled down into patient care
2: so before i talk about the reason why they stay or why practices don't Fire them And you hinted to it. Let's talk a little bit more about engagement. How the heck do you measure that?
0: It's difficult to measure in ambulatory care settings, um, which is what a lot of their infertility offices are. A lot of the research um, is done in hospital settings. And so, one of the, or not for nurses in ambulatory settings, but one of the, you know, kind of Sentinel articles, which is old now, it's from 2004. There's been a couple of updates, but in these researchers found that more than a third of the nurses that they surveyed intended to leave their positions within the next year. And as we know, orienting new employees, particularly new nurses, can be incredibly expensive. A lot of nurses will leave before the one-year mark or after the 10-year mark. So then there's an overstimulation, understimulation kind of ends of the continuum that need to be addressed. And another statistic that I found incredibly interesting is that the managers of the nurses or leader or team leader are responsible for 70% of the variability in terms of whether or not nurses are engaged. So not retained, but engaged. And it's not, you know, buying somebody a pen, or giving somebody a lunch, it's making them feel appreciated, according to, you know, certain, me- you can study the metrics, it's just difficult in ambulatory care settings to study, you know, the rate of retention, etc.
2: Do you have any indices? I mean, I think a, a good manager knows, right, when their employer, when their employees are really about taking ownership of their seats versus those that aren't. But it's tough to measure. Okay, we had a snowstorm three weeks ago, and Janet stayed an hour and 45 minutes extra so that everyone else could go home that live further away. How else, what what else are you looking for?
0: Well, there's a couple of metrics out there for nursing, not necessarily specific to a certain kind of nursing. There's one is called the American Nurse Association put out this magnet recognition program. And it's 14 defining qualities in organizations that help with enriching and uh, enrichment and retention. And I didn't, you know, write all fourteen down, but basically the gist is that they want to be recognized. They want intellectual stimulation. They want to know that there's no ceiling to where they are now, what they can be doing. They want supervisor support. They want their leaders to inspire them, engage them, motivate them. And motivate them to inspire others. So the opposite of what we were talking about, the burnout, crabby, lunchroom nurse. And they want to know what the expectations are so that they can meet them. And so, you know, sometimes this, you know, one of my least favorite things to do as a nurse manager was write an annual performance review. Because I had, you know, 30, let's say, of them to write. So in the beginning, I'm like using all these good words and I'm, you know, really being thoughtful And by number 15 or 16, I'm like, what's another word for do? What's another word for address? And I really was, you know, doing them a disservice in my mind by maybe trying to group them together. But these need to be done thoughtfully and they need to be done regularly. And they need to be they need to have the expectation set because then you can't feel bad if somebody doesn't meet an expectation that they don't know or that they, you know, haven't been told about before.
2: So it's the nurse manager's job to be. Measuring these, evaluating these, and then sharing that feedback with the nurses.
0: In my opinion, or team leader, depending on how who does the evaluations, a, a large, larger office potentially would have a couple of nursing leaders that then report to the nurse manager, or clinical nurse specialist, whoever that falls under.
2: What happens when it's the leaders and the managers that are burnt out?
0: Well, that happens often. <laughs> that happens often. And then those are the people that end up staying. So then the next person up, the nurses and leaders need to feel like their next person up recognizes them, supports them in terms of, you know, having a competitive salary, understanding that they can't do everything, even if they do do everything that they can't potentially do it. Well, I really feel for nurse leaders and nurse managers that they need to be valued. And I think that a lot of times, you know, they're undervalued because they're thinking, what do they really do? What do you do in a day? And what do you see? And you're in these meetings, et cetera. So, in order to attract qualified nurses, you need to make the job attractive. And that attractiveness of the role will continue to evolve and have different iterations depending on what that person wants and what that practice needs. And it's keeping up with that. And the only way you can do that is having a relatively regular review or process or discussion or conversation.
2: In a smaller practice, would that be a practice administrator or does the the physician owner really need to be involved in that sort of feedback?
0: I think a practice administrator for most practices, I feel like they are the next person to talk about the non-clinical part of the practice. But then whoever the physician is, whether it's the medical director or whether there's there's a physician for some practices, there's a different physician ends up becoming the nurse liaison it would be that person and having that open line of communication with that person on the nurse that manager's part or nurse leader's part they need to be in my opinion prepared though for these meetings and discussions with here's what we think is going on concrete details and importantly what they suggest if they have any suggestions for what to do about a challenging outcome or situation there's nothing that i that people dislike more than somebody complaining to them without having any ideas, strategy, clue about what to do next, and then just kind of leaving the room. So I think for everybody to be prepared and therefore for there to be an open line of communication and in a, an approachability by the next person, whether it's the physician or the clinical practice manager, is incredibly important.
2: Can you give some more examples of what those details would be if there's any sort of issue going on in the practice that the practice admin or the medical director is bringing to the conversation with the nurse manager?
0: So a lot of times there is a, let's say a specific person that is staying, but we, we no one really wants them to stay, including the person themselves, as we discussed. There needs to be concrete examples of what is happening and what was done according to what was happening. Has the patient been, we've had people that have come from other practices that have 10 years of infertility experience. And so we get them in our practice and assume that they know infertility. And either they, they do, but they've learned it a different way, or they were in a practice where they were not autonomous. And so they are afraid to take risks. They, so in that particular situation, the per, what is the drawbacks that person need to be addressed? The strengths of that person need to be addressed. Maybe that person is great for your center, but not for their current role. So maybe it's finding a creative spot for them in your practice. If it's a nurse practitioner that is being late on all of her scheduled appointments throughout the day, maybe she actually needs to be taken out of a clinician role or have a partial clinician role. And then the other part, she would end up doing some direct patient care because that's what she likes better. But it's just writing down what the issue is and, and, and then having a policy and procedure. I also think having regular quality control, or quality improvement meetings are essential. All of the practices I work with, either have them or we implemented them. Because whenever there's a mistake, there needs to be no judgment about who made the mistake. There needs to be a written set of what ended up happening and, and importantly, what you're going to do to keep it happening from happening in the future.
2: In really small practices, there's one doctor and one nurse. In really large practices, does it have to be every doctor with every nursing team because a doctor has a few nurses on their team in larger practices or does is it really that the job of that one physician who's the nursing liaison to show the appreciation gather the feedback conduct the evaluations i wouldn't see every physician doing all of that but i guess you know if you have an amazing nursing liaison as a physician does that compensate if a lot of nurses have poor relationships or just don't feel like they're getting encouragement feedback from the doctors that they're working
0: with? Well, you got, I think if they don't feel supported, you have to find out where the stop gap was. So maybe it's the nurse leader. Maybe the physician has no idea the strides that this person's making or what they're doing because the nurse leader is not fully acting as a full engagement or advocate for that person. But let's assume that the nurse leader or the nurse manager is, and she's doing regular reviews. Some practices will have one of the physicians sit in on the review with the nurse manager. That physician could be that physician that's there that day, or it could be that physician that knows that particular nurse, that nurse has that physician's patients the most. Not everybody has primary nursing models in their practice. So a physician can have a couple of nurses, but that nurse can be covering all the physician's patients. So it really depends on what the model is that the practice uses. I always recommend that two people are sitting in though on whether it's the regular physician or the practice manager, like we talked about, along with the person that wrote the evaluation, the nurse leader, the nurse manager.
2: What do you do as a consultant when you start to see that there might be a really deep-seated cultural issue of feedback, of the way staff gets along? Because we work with Clinics, both really small and really big, that have amazing cultures. And we can physically feel it when we go to their office, when we go out to dinner with them, the way they treat each other. It's just, it's not something that they're just checking off on a quarterly spreadsheet. It, it really is in their DNA. And working with those clinics is night and day different from different people who it's just broken. And it it seems like if, if, you know, trying to help them implement one system over here becomes so much more difficult because it's just broken from the top and it's been that way for a while and it's sort of systemic to the practice. So when you feel like there's a bigger cultural issue than I might be able to solve in a couple of sessions or workshops or a training system over several months, how do you address that?
0: So I'm lucky. Um, I think you and I talked about this in the past, too, in terms of how we pick our clients, right? We're at a point where in order to do our best job or do the best job for this place, we need to pick people who are receptive to us and our ideas. So when I have somebody approach me to be a client, I'm able to assess that pretty quickly. I go to the center where they are. I stay with them usually for a couple of business days. Often there's been phone calls before. I can say that there's very often that one of the nurse managers that is there is not happy about me being there in the beginning, maybe feels threatened, maybe feels that I'm going to be judging, which she, most of the time, it's a she has done in the past or continues to do. That ends up being okay 99% of the time. But in terms of the entire practice, I have had practices that I have turned down as clients because I can tell that they are not, that there's it's going to be very difficult to make any kind of positive change. I have had practices where I've asked them to invest in their nurses, not just financially, but emotionally. And I can see that it's not happening. Patients, they're not interested in, in making robust patient education systems on their website or in other ways, which can decrease the work that nurses have to do. And that stuff you can tell pretty early on. I've had other practices that I went into, and I loved everybody there. And they just don't have the the paperwork that's necessary. They don't have the manuals necessary. You know, if they're, they're not sure about FDA guidelines, let's say, well, those practices I will take in a heartbeat because they have the glue and they have everybody that, or they recently, let's say, converted to electronic medical records and they're all panicked. So those practices I would take on a heartbeat because that's the stuff that I can help and fix because the culture, the cohesiveness of that practice is already there. I cannot do anything to, in terms of making a practice cohesive if there's a lot of hard feelings or, you know, antagonism there that precedes me.
2: To me, that's one of the best parts about being a consultant is the better you get, the more selective you can be in the clients you take,
0: the more selective
2: you can be in the clients you take, the better you get. For sure. It's a virtuous cycle. And if we feel this way as consultants, that should be a red flag. That If consultants don't want to work with you on a basis where, you know, they're not with you all of the time. What does that mean with attracting talent?
0: Well, it's interesting because a lot of them then will want me to be basically their headhunter. They're like, well if you can't work with us, then can you help us find nurses that will? And I'm reluctant to do that because I'm not going to have somebody, especially if they're gonna to move to a different state, much less move to a different practice, maybe give up their benefits or you know their retirement that they've invested in there so far to be at a place where I don't even feel comfortable working there so I've had to have some uncomfortable conversations with physicians about why I wouldn't necessarily recommend their practice to nurses to move there because of x y and z but I usually have already written down in my practice assessment what I think the issue is and if they're willing to work on that issue and a couple of them have been then I'll be willing to recommend the nurses and if they're not then I, I can't in full, I, I'm uncomfortable recommending nurses to a place that I myself wouldn't even work for a short time.
2: Maybe we should even explain a little bit or elucidate a bit more what a poor culture is because I don't necessarily mean bad people. Sometimes I know really good people who own practices, run practices that just don't have the time, ability, knowledge, for whatever reason, they cannot or will not invest deeply into these areas of the practice, and I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. If you have, if, if you're unable or unwilling to, then that results in the inferior culture, or that I should better said, the cultural problems that can really manifest itself much more broadly in the ways that we're talking about, as opposed to being, you know, an angry. Or abusive person at the top because that's often not the case. It's often good people who maybe had good practice for a long time, but they just either don't want to or can't get into it enough to let you do your job or let other people do their job. At least that's my take of it. How do you? Well, see
0: that? everybody that I've talked to is falls into the latter that you've described, not the abusive boss. Everybody falls into well-meaning people. I can't get their act together in some way. So part of it, I think, it has to be kind of broken down into parts. So one is that there's a lot of good people there, but the, there's not a collective good. There's not a collective cohesion. There's not a need for the nurses to work with each other and work well interdepartmentally. I see that there's a lot of resentment sometimes between departments. People don't really know what the other person does, and I've also seen practices where the, it starts with a physician physicians who can be incredibly unapproachable. Now, I've seen that less and less through, I've done this for over 20 years, it's becoming less and less for the physicians unapproachable. It used to be a long time ago that you had to go through like 50 people in order to kind of get to the lead physician. That's becoming a little bit better. But even if they're approachable, it doesn't mean that they are, anything that you're saying is resonating with them in terms of them making a change based on your suggestions. And so I think that everybody wants to be heard. And even if they're not gonna listen to what you have to say, you can tell when somebody is hurt or when somebody's kind of like shutting you down. So I think that there's that. But there's also within individuals, what I find is I would rather, and you and I have talked about this before in terms of hiring, hire somebody who is an ER nurse or a critical care nurse to work in an infertility practice and teach them reproductive endocrine theory than teach somebody who knows women's health how to multitask. So a lot of times what I find in in cultures, and again, well-meaning people, are individuals who are unable to multitask. And so what happens is that those who are able to multitask overdo everything because they feel like they can't delegate. The ones who can't multitask spin around in a circle and just do things that they can do quickly, but they don't really kind of do anything well because they can't figure out kind of where to start. And the practice of reproductive endocrinology is very quick. The patients are very savvy. They're very well-read. You really need to be on your game. You need to be able to do a couple things at once. You need to be incredibly organized. And those are not things that can be taught. So really, these, this culture of these practices starts with who you hire and the qualities that you look for in somebody that you hire, which, in my opinion, do not need to be women's health. Women's health is so easy to teach to a bright, savvy, motivated person. I cannot teach a women's health person to be bright, savvy, or motivated. And that, that to me, is the issue. So that's the start. And then in terms of the collective cohesiveness, it's how they're treated once they get there and how they continue to be treated.
2: So based on what you just said, the the caveat being how they're treated once they get there, I will see your assertion of the culture starts with the people that you hire and raise it with it starts from the people doing the hiring. And (laughs) that starts from whoever's name is on that business. And it's one thing that I've been writing a lot more about. It's one thing I've been asking people about interviewing more deeply is the structures that practices are built on because multi-physician practices can work and independently owned practices can work, but I don't think they can work the same way that they did 25 years ago. And I think that has to do with how the structure is set up from the very beginning, not necessarily as a legal entity, but operationally. One of the things that I enjoy most about owning Fertility Bridge is that it's a dictatorship. I don't have to ask another co-owner, co-owner, what direction should we take or should we hire someone? I solicit the advice of mentors when I need counsel and I get the advice of my team. I get their feedback to help inform my decision. But the fact that one person makes the decision makes it a lot easier to To chart the direction and I think a lot of practices are set up to where that was just the way it worked in the last century you had a doc that completed medical school and there weren't all these large practice groups they either joined a health system or a university or they owned their own practice and opened that and then however many physicians there were is typically how the partnership was divided by and now when you have companies coming in with a very specific direction and motive and goal set competing against practices that don't have a mission statement, don't have defined annual goals, mainly because they don't have one person as in the visionary role steering that ship. That's where I think it starts. Would you agree or disagree?
0: Agree. So I, I think that every practice needs a visionary or a couple, but that you also need the people that carry out the visionary stuff. So I consider myself a visionary in some ways, and I like to start stuff, and I'm terrible at finishing and continuing stuff, which is why I'm good as a consultant, because I get everybody going, and then I hope to train people to do that. But you need somebody that sees the bigger picture. I was reading in the difference between a leader and a manager uh, for one of the talks that I give, and a manager kind of looks inside and figures what they can do in order to tighten up the looking inside part a leader looks outside and says where are we in terms of where the other centers are and what people need so going back to what you said these companies that are you know buying these practices for example a lot of them are promoting egg freezing egg freezing or oocyte freezing we just just became not experimental in like 2012 2013 so now there's a huge need for it there's a lot of data on it that it's it's works now when it didn't work so well before because of the technology that we used. So a lot of these large companies want centers to really focus on egg freezing for, quote unquote, social reasons in terms of people that are aging or don't have partners so that they can protect their reproductive potential. In addition to those patients that have used it before, such as patients who were undergoing some cancer treatments or what we call gonadotoxic. Treatments uh, that might negatively affect the ovaries, and so the co- the business may be getting very, very busy with egg freezing because that's what the company that bought them thinks they need to be good doing, and they may be saturated with patients that might want to do it, who who require a lot of counseling as they should. And this is a big ethical issue. There's a lot of financial repercussions. We're still not sure how many eggs to freeze, et cetera. There's a lot of studies of this. This is ongoing and evolving. And then the nurses still have these other patients who are getting embryos back and they're still making pregnancy test calls. So where do they, you know, where do they they find their role? Because after the person that freezes their eggs, freezes them, the eggs go in the freezer and that person is, you know, gone until for at least a couple of years or maybe a year. But then you have your patients that are ongoing. And so you feel like you have to really have your attention and your caring divided between what is expected of you and taking care of the people that are already there.
2: So when we lose some of the nurses because maybe we're not set up to support them as well as we want to be or because we're we're not in line with how we need to be operationally, do you find that people keep the nurses that shouldn't stay on the team for one of these two? I guess which one of these two reasons do you find people keep? nurses that shouldn't be on the team more than they should be I typically find there's two reasons for keeping anyone that shouldn't be on the team any longer no matter what the team is the first is that the person in charge of hiring and firing doesn't want to have that conversation and let them go or feels bad about it or makes excuses for them I typically do not make that mistake but I have been guilty of the second mistake which is can't or won't have the time to invest in finding the right person that should replace them. What do you find is more common when there's somebody on the team that is causing a
0: toxic problem? I think what you said, the latter. I mean, I think that we're all in the managerial positions, somewhat getting better at uncomfortable conversations. So we're going to have those conversations where the conversation isn't going to keep the person there, the lack of comfort in the conversation, but... In my opinion, we don't wanna make another hole in the staff by firing somebody. So sometimes, oftentimes, there's this one, let's say nurse, because that's what I do, that's there that you're like, oh my gosh, we can't give the patients who need extra support to Joan. And we can't give this person to Joan. But Joan is really good at following up with insurance companies and making sure that the person gets their medication, which should, in my opinion isn't a nursing role anyway. That's a whole other conversation. So we end up keeping Joan. Because we end up keeping a body there that does these tasks. And then we don't open up the hole because we don't want to have to orient somebody. And we keep thinking that Joan is going to get better and more appreciated and it keeps probably getting worse. And what we don't realize is that the other people that are taking on the stuff that Joan is unable to take on are getting more and more burdened and more and more resentful of Joan and the people who are unable to or unwilling to just let Joan go. And so I've talked to a lot of people over the years about this. And nurses, one thing that makes nurses good is their intuition. A good nurse has a good intuition. And if you know in the first three months that this nurse isn't going to work out, you still have to do all the writing stuff down. But you're right. I mean, you're, you're probably right. And so it's best for everybody, including that nurse, to then who probably isn't happy calling insurance companies all day, to just let that person go. But it is very difficult because then you have a hole that you create You lost, you have to have, now you're down a person. So the remaining people are taking care of her work. And then they're like, who's going to be the one to talk to the orientee? Who's going to be the one to train the orientee? Because your day is so burdened and heavy when you're going over every word that you're saying with somebody that you're orienting and you have your own work to do, which most of the practices don't have a separate nurse educator. So getting rid of that person opens up a whole new can of worms.
2: In my business, I keep two positions open, Evergreen, at a part-time level, just to get people in. And because if they're good at those in different ways, they could sprint out. That's project manager and social media manager. They can both evolve into different things. And I just want those people in my eco, so that... I'm not having this problem if and when it's time to replace people or as we grow, can practices do something similar?
0: There are, for nurses, there are roles that are more and less complicated or involved. So in the infertility setting, let's say, a lot of people have asked me, I'll backtrack, if we would be willing to hire somebody that's new, a new graduate. So new graduates have a hard time finding their kind of first job, like anybody that's new in the workforce. And so people have asked me before, would you be willing to hire a new graduate? And I used to say no, or I used to say only in the OR, because you're teaching them PACU stuff, uh, you know, post-op stuff that's pretty easy to teach, it's vital signs. And then they're getting a little bit of the reproductive endocrinology, you can get a feel for the person, you're, you're getting to know if they can problem solve. And so I still feel that that's good. But now I'm willing to have a new graduate start work as a nurse in, an, in a reproductive endocrine center, because... First of all, a lot of these graduates that go through and get their master's never worked as a nurse before. So they go to nursing school and then they immediately go through and get their master's. And so I don't know that a new graduate who's hungry to work and is interested in something is necessarily a worse hire than somebody that's been on a floor for 15 years and is sick of it and wants to get in an ambulatory care setting because they want to work Monday through Friday. So I really think it comes down to the particular person. And so for nursing roles, there's varying levels of complexity complexity. And so you can start somebody up on a not complex role and then gradually move them into that. We've had people that we really like that say, I can't, this is too much for me. I like what I'm doing, but it's too much that we've kept part-time or job shared for them. So they, two of them cover Monday through Friday. They like it because they have days off in between. We've had other people that need more of a challenge. You put them in the third-party program where you donate eggs or embryos or carry somebody else's pregnancy because there's complexity there. There's different people that you have to deal with. And then we have people that are like, I just want to be in the operating room. I need to know what I need to know for the operating room. And so for if they're a good employee, we find them in in a role like that. But we don't we probably always have a nursing position open because we probably always have a nursing position open. And it's just who are we gonna find to to fill it. But I think we need to lessen the weight of experience and be more critical of the person themselves and what their positive attributes are.
2: I want to wrap this up by talking about how we can support nurses throughout compassion fatigue, because I'm very open about this with my clients. My employees, my team are more important to me than my clients. And I tell my clients that I, my employees are the most important to me because if my employees are happy. Then everything is right. They like working with each other. They like working on new stuff. They like doing extra things For the client, they take ownership. They don't throw blame at each other. And speed is so much more prevalent. And so I tell people all the time, I I will not take on a new client if I feel like they're going to be abusive to my team. That's a lot different in an REI practice when you've got so many more patients and understandably so much more emotion and the gravity of everything that they have to deal with how do you balance that with the patients that are struggling with all this, a lot of which can get projected onto the nurses versus the nurses having to do their job and, and also provide compassion for them so that they are taken care of, happy with their care, more compliant in treatment so they get better outcomes versus the nurses being taken advantage of because of this and then having compassion fatigue? How do you balance all of that?
0: So first of all, what you described to your employees is what I would, how I would define engagement, right? All of those things that you said that is important for your employees to do and for you to support them in doing is an engaged employee. So as I said before, the, the opposite of that would be some, so what makes nurses good is that they're caring, they're compassionate, and they're intuitive. But compassion fatigue is almost being that to your own detriment. So let's say, let's put it in a, so when I first started working, I was in the neonatal ICU. And I love the neonatal ICU. I love the babies. I love taking care of them. Unfortunately, you lose babies in the the neonatal ICU. And then you get very close to the parents. And for me, being 20-something years old, it was just emotionally too much. And I knew, and I left that. Once I got into reproductive endocrinology, obviously, you don't have that critical care aspect of a loss of a person. But what you have is a loss of somebody's dream, which is a pregnancy, and you make many, 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 many you're not pregnant phone calls. Well you get very close to these patients, or at least a lot of us do. Um, you know i've done I've been in the same place for fifteen years, and people are still sending me pictures of their kids that are now you know fifteen years old. They find me wherever I am. they feel there's a very strong bond there. But that same bond is what keeps me up at night wondering if I could have had a bit of an easier, a better conversation. Did I talk to the person in the right way? So I think in terms of compassion fatigue, You really need to be good about boundaries. You need to have self-care for yourself. So for me, who's willing to always take that extra weekend or do mandatory overtime or do whatever, I've had to stop doing that at times because I realized that I was doing that to my detriment. So I want to be there for the practice, but then I was not there for myself. So it's really setting a boundary in terms of self-care. It's setting boundaries of patients. I've had patients send me 15 emails a day. And I said, to them. look, I know that you have a lot of questions and you're nervous. I would be nervous too, but you can send me one email with 15 bullet points. And then they do. Otherwise I don't say anything. I don't set a boundary and they send me 15 emails. I'm like, oh my, there's this person again. And then I start talking about the person to the other nurses and then it just perpetuates and it feels unprofessional and it, cause it is. And so for me, it's really, the other thing is, is you want to have the systems work. You need to have an IT person or an IT system that's good and available. The not having IT support or nurses not knowing how to do computer stuff is a really big issue. And then the nurse is not doing nursing stuff, which to me is calling for a pre-authorization of the medication and being on hold for 15 minutes. So a lot of practices have nurses do this because they don't have anyone else that does it. But having a non-clinical person to that be that support and let nurses act as nurses so that they can really take care of the patients they have, And they can set these defined boundaries and stay within them, both for their own personal care and for taking care of the patients. So I'm still going to be up at night worrying that I said something wrong to a patient or I could have said something different. Or I'm thinking about that patient that's been through eight cycles and I still gave a negative pregnancy test due and what can I do for them. But that's part of me. That's not going to be something that I wish I would have done differently because I've done this for so long now that I feel like I know what to do and what not to do.
2: Do nurses set their own individual boundaries or is that set by the team leader, the nurse manager, the practice leadership?
0: I think overall large boundaries are set by them. But then when it comes to how many emails a day or how many phone calls a day or, you know, that is something different. um, I think that's an individual nursing thing. The other. I guess there would have
2: to be some agreement from the top of. Yeah, we're going to support you in these boundaries. Absolutely, having an idea of what they are, because you know, I could, I could easily see a nurse setting some of those boundaries, and if that isn't agreement with leadership, then it's you're not doing your job.
0: Yes, no, it has to be a con- conversation. I've had to have that conversation because you know, there's been patients who have said I who really have pushed limits and I will go to, let's say the physician that I worked with and said, Hey, Jane Doe is really, is, is really pushing limits. I am going to challenge her. I'm going to push back. Here's what I'm going to do and say, and I need your support. And 99% of the time they're like, absolutely very rarely, but just giving a heads up. Cause then if the patient reframes the conversation and calls the doctor and says, Monica called me and told me not to email her anymore. They were already given the heads up that this was a pushing back and what it happened to proceed that.
2: Monica, I'm not just saying this because we've been friends for a while and we're on the interview together, but I think that anyone having this issue with issues with their nurse management, issues with retention, issues with burnout among their nurses should contact you and we'll have your contact info in the show notes because everyone that I've talked to that's worked with you has nothing but great things to say about. So what what would you conclude knowing that our audience is practice managers, practice owners, physicians, that they should know about? their nurses and their nursing teams.
0: I really feel that I can't say enough about making people feel supported, making people feel valued. I think that one of the main reasons people feel leave is because they perceive that they are undervalued in some way. And whether that's a, Hey, how's it going today? Whether it's a starting a meeting off with, I want to thank this person for this, whether it's a sending an email out to show, new baby or to congratulate somebody or something i really feel like that is in order to attract qualified nurses like i told you before you need to have a really good job setting and it needs to start off that way with the hiring and then they need to be valued once they get there i think that you need to incentivize somebody to be there but the incentive doesn't need to be monetary monica Moore,
2: thank you so much for coming on inside reproductive health
0: my pleasure thanks so much for asking me
1: you've been listening to the inside reproductive health podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices, growth, and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on FertilityBridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes.